right, well, let's get started with our message for today. We are uh, continuing in our series through the life of David. Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 27. So if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 27 in your Bibles, Bible app, or wherever you're reading, then you can do that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay, because we'll have the, uh, the text on the screens next to me here, so you'll be able to follow along. No one will be left behind. So I'll give you guys just a moment to get turned there, and then we'll get started here in a second. All right, so once again, we're being in 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're actually going to read through chapter 27 and then a couple of verses into 28. It's pretty short, so, so that's why we're going to do that. 1 Samuel 27, starting verse 1, that's where we're going to be. It looks like everybody's about there already, so we will go ahead and get started then. Man, I got the real good stand today. This one is wobbly and hard to use. Look at this. This makes me insecure. I don't like this. It makes me uncomfortable. Matt's got the nice one over there. <laughs> Y'all gave the intern the good one. <laughs> All right, well, let's get started, and I'll just I'll deal with my bad stand. Okay, so in 1 Samuel chapter 27 and verse 1, it says, David said to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David set out with his 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish in Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahoanim of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Now David said to Achish, If I have found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns so that I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? That day, Achish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the kings of Judah today. The length of time David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur, as far as the land of Egypt, Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, Where did you raid today? David replied, The south country of Judah. The south country of the Jeremelites, or the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us and say, this is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, since he has made himself repulsive to, the pe to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, you know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. David replied to Achish, Good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. So I once heard a long time ago 
this old preacher say that is good for uh, is good for pastors and, and young preachers to preach through whole books of the Bible because whenever you whenever you're committed to preaching through a whole book every single verse which is what we're doing in this series uh, we don't always do that but we're doing that in this series but whenever you're committed to doing that you're going to come across passages that otherwise you would have skipped and today is definitely one of those passages. <laughs> Uh, Monday earlier this week, whenever I was uh, beginning to do sermon prep and get ready for this Sunday, when the, first, the first thing I do is always see, okay, what's up next? And open my Bible and just start reading that passage for myself, just a few times. And I read this one, and I, I came to the end of it, and I thought to myself, good grief. <laughs> Can I just skip this one, <laughs> right? But here's, here's the thing. This is definitely, it, especially up to this point in our series, this is, this, is one of, this is the most difficult passage that we've looked at so far. It's probably one of the most difficult passages in, in, in David's life, right? And so it would be very easy for us, or it would have been really easy for me, to just jump over it and move on, right, to places that are easier. And I think that a lot of us, whenever we're reading the Bible in your own devotional time, or if you're working your way through some kind of study, uh, we all come to different passages where, whether it's something in the Old Testament, a, a story like this where you just, you're like, what do I do with this, right? Or if it's, even if it's something else uh, in the Old Testament, something in the New Testament, it's a passage where uh, it's just, it, it might just be very, very confusing. You have no idea what's, what's being said, and you think, my goodness, what do I do with this, right? I think that we, would, we could all be tempted to have, uh, to do something like that, right, and to, uh, and, and to just skip over or not really dig in. But I think, so the, the question is, when we come to a difficult text like this, what do we do? What do we do with it, right? And I think that the right response, especially for me as a, as a pastor trying to teach us how to approach the Bible and understand it, I think the right response is that we come to it, first of all, with an attitude of humility, right, and understand maybe God has something for me to learn here. And that's the conclusion that I came to earlier this week. We were all studying and, and, and reading this, and, and I realized, you know what? Sure, my, my own mind tells me this is a hard one. We should just skip over it. And, and maybe even our modern sensibilities would tell us the things that we read about here in this passage and the actions of David are not worth our consideration, and so skip over it. But maybe myself and we should have some humility and approach this passage of Scripture, this difficult section, and say maybe God has something for us to learn here. Right? Just maybe he does. Maybe he knows better than us, and he has something for us to learn. And so that's why we're going to continue looking at it, because I want you guys to have the confidence, whenever you are going and reading the Bible for yourself, that God has something for you in every page of Scripture. God has something for you in every page of Scripture. He has something for you in every verse. There is not one part of it that does not apply to your life, right? But he has something for you in it all. Right? And even in these difficult passages, whether it's one like this, something else in the Old Testament, or something in the New Testament, he has something for us to learn if we approach it being teachable, right? being humble. And so that's why we're going to continue on with this passage today. And I think we actually do have some very, very good lessons to learn from this, uh, this section here. So the way we're going to look at this, this passage is we're going to look at it, um, I think of it in this sense, we're going to look at it in a very small sense and then expand outward, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in and look at David's heart, and then we're going to expand out from that uh, in this passage. So we're going to zoom in and look at David's heart and look at David's security. We're going to look at David's security, but then we're going to zoom out a little bit, look at just the situation he's in, and we're going to look at David's foolishness in this passage, and then we're going to zoom out even bigger and say, like, what is God doing, right? Why is this even in the pages of Scripture, right? So we're going to look at 
uh, David's security, David's foolishness, but then finish with God's wisdom and what he's doing in it all. All right? So let's look at David's security. I think it's helpful if we remember the context here. If you've been with us for a while, or I'll give you a little refresher no matter what. But just remembering the context. So David has been running through the wilderness as an outlaw. He is, he's being chased by the tyrant King Saul, who is threatened by David's popularity. He, he believes David is trying to take over his throne, so he has been trying to kill him now. Uh, he's been sending out assassins. He has been chasing him himself. All over Israel, sometimes David has to go out outside of Israel to escape him. This has been going on for a long time. And if you were with us the past several weeks, then we just looked at these section, these, this section of uh, three chapters together that all showed David learning about patience and restraint and learning to trust in God even as he is running in the wilderness. Because there's a couple of times where he had the opportunity to take Saul's life, but he understood that it would not be the right thing to, thing to do to assassinate Saul himself, that God was going to come through, God was going to deliver on his promises in his time. It was not in David's hands, it was in God's hands, and so he refrains from doing that, right? And in doing that, in refraining from taking Saul's life in his own hands, which would have been a temptation for any warrior, right, who was, going, who was in David's shoes, through doing this, we, we learn and we see how, how David is maturing in his faith, in his trust in God, that God has this situation under control, right, that God's promises are true, that God will always, that he is faithful and he will deliver on his promises, right? And so that's what we've been seeing happening. And so it comes to this point where at the end of chapter 26, uh, Saul and David have their last confrontation between one another, the last time they ever speak to one another before Saul dies. And at the end of it, Saul says to him, he says to David, look, you're safe now. I'm done chasing after you. I recognize that I've been in the wrong this whole time, and so you can come back home if you want to. This is over. Now, Saul had said things like this before, and so David was rightly skeptical about it. He didn't take Saul's word for it, and in fact, that's the first thing he says in verse 1 of 27. He says, you know, Saul is definitely still going to be coming after me, right? But then he goes a little farther than that. He goes a little bit further than that. He doesn't just say, he's not just rightly skeptical of Saul, but he even goes a little bit further to say this. Note the wordings that, it, it, that he uses. He says, one of these days, I'll be swept away by Saul. In the Hebrew of this passage, whenever uh, David says that he's going to be swept away by Saul, it's in fact the very same word that he used earlier in chapter 26, where he was describing what God was going to do to Saul one day. There's this point where David and his, uh, and his uh, helper, the soldier who came with them, are looking at Saul sleeping. They have the opportunity to take Saul's life. And in verse 10, David has to restrain his servant from taking Saul's life because he says, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord will either strike him down, his day will come into battle and die, or he's going to perish in some other way. But whenever David says there, strike down, he's using the same word, the exact same word, that he says to himself in 27.1 about Saul coming to sweep him away, right? In the English, they translate it in two different ways, but it's the same word being used there. So notice here, the faith that he had in God, just a, just a moment or a season before here, right? The faith that he had in God and what God could do, he's now looking at his own life and saying that the same thing is going to happen to him by the hands of Saul. Here's a reality that we need to understand, and if, you, if you're in touch with your own with your own spiritual life at all, you know this is true. Despite this season of growth and, this, and, and the, the maturity, the faith, all these great qualities that we saw just displayed in David, 
even though it's, it's kind of shocking, it's understandable that he has this magnificent reversal now. Now, that faith that he once like, w- was operating on has seemed to kind of be shaken, right? He's, he's no longer saying, God's going to deal with this, but he's saying, I'm going to be swept away, right? It's, it's understandable. And like I said, we all know that. If, if you've been in touch with your, your spiritual health and life for any amount of time, you know that, that you'll have seasons of great growth where you are, you're, you're solid in your faith and you're walking with the Lord. And then on the turn of a dime, right, the next day or the next moment, you can just fail miserably, right? We've all been in times like that. And we've all had extreme highs followed by extreme lows. And that's what we see happening with David here. And so even though it's surprising, right, how, how could he go from, from that much faith to then that much doubt, fear, and anxiety, right? If you look at your own life, it's completely understandable, it's completely understandable, especially considering all that David has been through, running through the wilderness, constantly having to, uh, you know, uh, save his own skin, and not just save his own skin, but take care of this army of 600 men he has now and all their families. Imagine the logistical headache that it was to constantly be moving around through the wilderness, running for your life with all these people and these possessions and, and, and so on, right? And so David, he's in a, he's in a moment of weakness here. Right? He's in a moment where that once strong faith he has starts to kind of be shaken. And he says to, my, to himself, the safest place for me is with the Philistines. Isn't that crazy? If you're familiar with the life of, of David in, in Israel, the Philistines were the enemies of Israel. David had made his career. His fame was built off of slaying Philistines in battle by defeating them. And now he's at this point because we can see his faith is being shaken his trust is being shaken to where he says to himself, this, the best place to me, for me to be is with the Philistines. And on the one hand, it was effective because the passage does say that Saul quit chasing after him once he found out he was with the Philistines. Because Saul said to himself, well, that's too much trouble. I'm not going to go and have to fight David and the Philistines. Right? But it, it still does show that David had this, this shaking of his faith. And so the first thing that we should learn from this passage here in chapter 27 is that you, should, you must remain in your true security. You must remain in your true security. I know that for us, a kingdom is not on the line, right? None of us are, are, are chosen future royalty running for our lives in the wilderness. Yet still, we all can do the very same thing that David here on just whatever scale it happens in our lives, where on one day we are operating in faith. One day we're trusting in God. We're looking at our life. We're looking at the situations we're going through. Maybe some hard times that you are going through. Maybe a time of doubt or, 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 or uncertainty. And you say, God's got this in his hands. Right? God's got this. It's under his control. And then the next day, or maybe just later that same day, your faith starts to shake. It gets weak. Right? What's happening in that moment? Well, whenever you were, whenever you were stable, and whenever you were certain of God's control, what was happening was that your security, right, what your heart trusted in was in God. It was in his sovereignty. And so that's what gave you stability. That's what gave you confidence to keep, to keep working and walking through life, even despite what you were going through, because you said, he's got it. My security is in him. But then where do you start to doubt and you start to question, you have anxiety. What's happening? You see, what's happening there is your security has started to slip out from being in God it started to be in something else. Your, the, where your heart was looking for security has, has slowly shifted away from looking at saying, this is in God's hands, to starting to maybe look at your own hands. 
You start looking at your own hands and saying, how am I going to fix this? Rather than saying, right, how, how's God going to come through? Maybe your security starts to slip away from God's control into looking at your finances. You start to look at money. You start to look at numbers, right? Whether numbers in your personal account, numbers at work, numbers at school, you start to look at the data, and then your security starts to lie there instead of in God, and so that's whenever it starts to shake. Or your security starts to be in other people. Your security starts to be in bosses or, or other leaders of whatever kind it might be, and then, and then you, your, your faith is shaken. You see, what's happening in David's heart happens in our hearts all the time. If we're being honest, what's happening with him, right, is a completely realistic thing that, ha- that op- happens and operates in our hearts all the time. Is that sometimes we're trusting in God and our security is in him, but then we start looking to other securities. Friends, you must remain in your true security. You must remain in your true security. Don't start looking at Philistines and saying, the best place for me to go is with the Philistines. Right, whatever the Philistines are in your life, whether that is people or whether that is uh, data, like numbers, like I was saying before, or whatever else, right? Even if it is just your own power, don't start saying the best place for me is with the Philistines in my life. Placing your true security there. What you need to do instead is speak the truth to yourself about God. What you need to do instead is speak the truth to yourself. Notice what happens here. It's really interesting. In verse 1, it says this. It says, David said to himself. David said to himself. There's some self-talk happening inside of David right now. There's some self-talk. There's there's one scholar who translated it in another way. He translated that passage as, David said to his heart, one day I'm going to be swept away, right? The only place for me to go is with the, the Philistines. David is talking to himself here. He's talking to his, he's talking to his heart. And, and, and so what is happening in this self-talk and what he's saying to his heart is he is not speaking the truth to his heart, but he is speaking a lie instead. He's starting to speak a lie to himself. And look what happens when you start to speak lies to yourself. And you start to speak lies to your heart. You speak the lie, you believe the lie, and then you act on it. That's what's happening in David. He's talking to himself. He's, he's not saying what he was saying before, that this is in God's hands. Now he's saying it's in Saul's hands. I'm going to be swept away by Saul. He's, he's saying this lie to himself, and he obviously believes it because then he acts on it by going to Gath, by going to the Philistine king Achish and living in Gentile territory. And the same thing happens with us all the time. You know, if you're conscious or aware at all, you know that you're always talking to yourself. There's, there's, there's an internal dialogue going on. You're talking to yourself. You're talking to your heart. And whenever you're doing that, you're either going to be speaking truth to yourself or you're going to be speaking lies. If you're going to remain in your true security, and if your faith is going to be stable, based, right, founded in the truth, then you've got to speak the truth. You've got to speak God's truth to your own heart. We see David once again doing this in Psalms. In the Psalm 62 Verse 5, David says this. He says, rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. You can see this in some of the other Psalms of David, too, where he, where he cries out to his own soul, and he says, hope in God. He says, he says why, are you, why are you distressed, O oh, my soul? One day I will again you know, see God move. We see David doing this later in the Psalms. He's speaking to his soul here, and what is he saying? He is speaking the truth. He's saying, rest in God alone, my soul. 
But that kind of truthful self-talk, David wasn't doing here in 27.1. He was believing a lie. And so whenever you in your life are going through a hard, you're going through a wilderness season like David, or you're going through a difficult circumstance, or you're going through a time that, that is filled with a lot of uncertainty, what are you speaking to yourself? Are you speaking God's truth? Are you saying rest in God alone? Are you filling your mind with the truth of God's word so that whenever those times of self-talk happen, you're equipped with God's words to say back to yourself? Or are you believing lies? Don't start speaking propaganda to yourself. Because what you say to your heart, you're going to start to believe and then you're going to start to act on. Remain in your true security and speak the truth. But let's look at David's foolishness. So we see what, what's happening in David's heart, but then we, we, we zoom out to just look at what then happens in the rest of 27 in this situation here. And so he goes into Philistine territory. It's, it's not extremely deep. Gath was, was very close to Israel. So he's, he essentially just hops right over the border. He hops right over the border into Philistine territory. He goes to Gath. If, you're, if you've been with us in this series, if you read First Samuel, you know that uh, he had gone to Gath before. So he had somewhat of a, uh, a, a neutral right, relationship with this king here in Gath. So he goes over to Gath, and he stays with him for a little while. But we've got to understand that Saul had a group of a—it was most likely at least a couple of thousand people with him. Because it says—the text says that he had his army of 600 men who were with him and gone with him to Gath. And then it says a little bit after that, and oh yeah, and their families were with them too. So if you multiply 600 times, you know, a few more to account for a wife or a couple of kids, or if it was, you know, they had a lot of kids, he had at least several thousand people with him. So you can imagine that whenever he goes to Gath and he is there in the city with the king, it was already a fairly populated city. He eventually goes to Achish and he says to him, hey, look, why, why should I stay here uh, crowding up your city, uh, being a strain on your resources? Just give me another town. Give me a place to go. Give me safe passage and a place to go where I can be out of your hair, right? And so Achish agrees to it. He says, okay, I'll give you this town named Ziklag. So David goes to Ziklag, and as it says here, Ziklag actually stays uh, underneath the control of Israelite kings for centuries after this. So David, so, I'm sorry, Achish gives David uh, this town called Ziklag, and David and his people go and essentially establish their own city there. They establish their own city, their own town. Uh, David is, is the ruler over this town. It's theirs for them to, to live in. But what do they do while they're there? They, they don't just stay put in the city. Instead, David and his men start acting like desert raiders. What they do is they get up, they suit up, put their, their armor and swords on, and they go out into the deserts and they find these other nomadic tribes that would be uh, out in the areas of southern Judah around them. They start going out there. The text names a couple of them for us. And there were these, uh, so there are these nomadic tribes. They were not Israelites. And David's men would go out there and they would raid them. They would raid them. They took their resources and then they would slaughter everybody, right? That's the hard part of this passage. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But, but before we get to that, so they would go out there and they were, they were essentially going to war with all these different tribes that were out there in uh, the regions of southern Judah. And then whenever he would take the spoils, because he was being somewhat protected by Achish, he would take some of what he had uh, gotten, right? It said that he would take livestock and all these possessions, and he would apparently go and give a tribute to Achish as, as a sort of payment, right? Because he's, being, he's living somewhat under the protection of Achish. They've got this alliance now. And so that's what's happening there in that passage where it says Achish would say to him, 
You know, David, where have you been raiding today? Where have you been pillaging today, David? And David would say to him, I was in the southern regions of Judah. And Achish was very pleased with it. He said, oh, yes, David is making himself repulsive even to his own people now. Here's what David is doing. It's extremely clever. He's going, he's being truthful in that he is, he's going back into Israel's territory and he's going into these regions of southern Judah, which, which, uh, which Judah is a part of Israel, and he's going into these regions of southern Judah, but he's going to these regions that are not under the control of, uh, of the Israelites. They're not under the control of the, the uh, Israel's kingdom. Instead, they're being controlled by all of these tribes, these Philistine tribes or different tribes who are out uh, essentially occupying these different areas of Israel. Because centuries before this, whenever God promised the, the land and the, the home of Israel to his people, and he distributed the land among the different tribes, not all the tribes were successful in establishing their land. They would go to war against the different tribes or, or peoples that were already living in those areas. Sometimes they would lose, uh, but sometimes some of the tribes were just completely unfaithful. They lacked all initiative to go and settle the home that God had promised to them. So the kingdom of Israel was not yet fully the kingdom that it was supposed to be, that God had promised and that uh, and it was divided. So here's what David is doing. He's going into these areas of Israel that have yet to be conquered and are conquering them. It's in southern Judah, but it is not Israelites who are living there, who are, who are, who are occupying those areas. David is taking them over. So it's extraordinarily clever what he's doing because he's able to go to Achish and say, I haven't, and not tell him the full truth, I've been raiding uh, Philistines, right? These are the possessions of Philistines that I'm bringing you. Instead, he says to him, I've been in southern Judah. And so he's got this, this, this scheme going here where Achish is under the impression that he is attacking his own people, right? That he's, he's a full-on traitor now. He's, he's a full-on Philistine. Uh, but what is actually happening is that he is attacking Philistine tribes who have been occupying different areas of Israel. It is an extraordinarily effective and clever plan, but here's the thing, ultimately foolish. It's ultimately foolish, right? We can say it's ultimately foolish, number one, uh, obviously because he is, because of all the bloodshed, right? And I said, like, we're, we're going to talk about that in a second here. It's ultimately foolish, number one, because of all the bloodshed. These are, not, these are not just wars that David is going on here. But on the other hand, it's ultimately foolish because when we get into chapter 28, you see Achish is getting ready to go to battle against the Israelites, and he said, oh, I'm going to use my new warrior, right? I'm going to use my new commander, David, to go into battle with me. And so now David is in this tight spot. Sometimes it's important for us to notice and appreciate the ambiguity of, of a narrative and of Scripture. Because where we leave off in verse 2 and where we leave off with David's answer, it doesn't tell us, that, it does, it doesn't tell us the end of the story that, that David got up and went to war for the Philistines. Because I think that we, the ambiguity of the text is supposed to give us a clue that that is not what David did. And especially David gives this very uh, vague answer to Achish whenever Achish says, hey, get ready, you're coming to war with me. David just says to him something that could be read in different ways where he says, good, you're going to find out what I'm capable of. Right? If you know the scheme that David has been hatching and working on here where he's kind of acting like a double agent, right? right? He's, he's, 
actually working on behalf of Israel, but fooling Achish. If, whenever you understand that context, and David says that very vague phrase there, you see it's kind of leaving open to us the, the ending of the story here. We don't know exactly what happened, but we know David is trying to keep his scheme up, and he is doing everything that he can to, uh, to keep Achish fooled and not to become a traitor against his own people, obviously. But here's what we need to understand. Because of his foolish choices, though it was, uh, it was an effective scheme but ultimately foolish, it put him in that tight spot where now he's got this situation that he's got to figure out how it's going to go because Achish wants him to go into battle with him, but obviously he cannot go into battle against his own people. You see, his effective but foolish plan got him there in that, in that spot. And here's where we learn an important lesson, that choosing effectiveness over wisdom is foolishness. Choosing effectiveness over wisdom is foolishness. Because very often in our life, we can come into different situations or circumstances where there are multiple options before us. We know that there's the best thing to do. There's the right thing to do, the, the moral thing to do. We know that there's the option that, that honors God the most. But it's not always easy, right? You've been through situations where you know that choosing the way that God would have you to go and doing the right thing, it might be the hardest of all the options that are before you. And you think to yourself, I can deal with this situation or I can get out of this mess in a much more effective way, in a much easier way, even though I know that's ah, not exactly the wisdom of God, right? It might, be, it might involve some kind of deception. It might be, there might be some immorality in it, but, or, or it might just be that it is not the full wisdom of God, that you know you're not operating in faith in him like you should, and so sometimes we might be tempted to choose what we think is really effective, even though we know it's not fully right. We can do this all the time in our own personal lives, and we can see this happening in, in the world around us. We can see this happening in politics. We can see this happening in business, where people choose to do the easy thing or the quick fix or what seems to be the most effective in the short term over choosing what would be the most wise. And here's what we need to understand. That choosing effectiveness over wisdom is always foolishness. Christians, people who follow God, if you are following Christ as, as his disciple, the option for us should never be to pit wisdom against effectiveness, right? or to, to pit uh, faithfulness to God, to Christ, right, against what seems to be the best fix. But understanding that if we would follow God, and he has all situations, and he has all circumstances under his control. If we follow him, if we follow his wisdom, then all will be well. And not try to take the situations into our own hands and, and make them work according to our knowledge and according to our wisdom, because that is ultimately foolishness. And so, let me encourage you with this. Always, always, always pursue wisdom above convenience. I think that should be our takeaway for our daily life in, in, this, in what David is doing here. His choices, they work in the short term, they're effective, but ultimately they're foolish. Well, I mean, we can read that, right? We, we can read what David's here, doing here and know this isn't right. And then, like I said, we can see that tight spot he got to there in, in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, and see where it led him. Always in your life, whether it's in your personal life, or whether it's in your family, decisions you're having to make for work, always choose wisdom above convenience. But what is God doing here? That's what I want us to finish looking at. 
God's wisdom despite David's shaky faith and despite David's foolishness. What is God doing? Obviously, the most difficult part of this passage is that David, the chosen king, becomes David the butcher. It's really difficult, and it is shocking to read how David goes into battle against these tribes, and he doesn't just kill their warriors. And then he doesn't go and just kill their men, but it says that he left no man or woman alive. He leaves no witnesses because, remember, he's got this scheme going. So he says to himself in his mind, I can't take any prisoners with me. I can't leave any survivors because they might go to to Ziklag, or they might go to Gath, or they might start, start talking to some other Philistines, and then the king Achish find out what I've actually been up to. So in order to keep up his scheme, he says to himself, well, the best thing for me to do, the only thing for me to do is to have to kill them all. And so there's this extraordinary, extraordinary amount of bloodshed happening here. He becomes David the butcher. It's shocking and it's difficult to read, especially difficult to read being that it is David doing it. So what do we do with it? What makes it even more difficult is that the passage doesn't offer us God's view. Right? It doesn't say, and God disapproved. And it doesn't offer us any commentary. Even the author who's sharing this story with us doesn't say, and what David was doing wasn't right. So that makes it even more difficult to us. In fact, this text is, of chapter 27 is completely godless. There's no mention of God in chapter 27 at all. Not by David, or not by the Philistines, or not by the author. So here you have this godless text. We don't get God's view. We don't get any commentary at all. And so we read the shocking shocking story, and we ask, so what are we supposed to do with this? Let me give you the short answer and then try to explain it. Here's what I believe is the short answer to what are we supposed to do with this. I think that this is being presented to us in a way that is sympathetic, but ultimately not approving of David's actions. I think that the way that the story is being presented is that on the one hand it's being presented to us in the sympathetic way where, where considering all that David has been through, it's difficult for us to say that many of us would have acted any differently. If we understand ourselves, if we understand how capable we all are for a lack of faith or our capacity for deceit, our capacity for evil, for sin, how many of us if we were in the situation like David was going through, all the, the life experiences he had been through, and then with that much military might at our hands, how many of us could say we would have done much different? Maybe we would have been worse. Maybe we would have fully defected to the Philistines, right? And so I think that on the one hand, this passage is, is sympathetic, but ultimately not approving of David's actions. And this is so important for us to understand because this is not the only text in the Bible where we read about bad things happening. It's not the only text in the Bible where we read about some really bad things happening to people, even innocent people. And it's also not the only place in the Bible where we read about someone who is, who is supposed to be God's person, right? Someone who is supposed to be the hero of the story doing the wrong thing. And oftentimes, whenever these stories are presented to us, there's no commentary with them, right? Just like there isn't any here in chapter 27. And so it's important that we understand uh, these points, that we understand this. That just because we are being reported something that happened, it does not mean that it was right. Just because the Bible reports something to us that happened in a historical narrative, the Bible is not saying that it was right. 
It's important for us to understand that. But consider, let me, let me just help you try to see this by bringing out a couple of points. The first one is this, is that David is already being presented as not trusting in God. He has already been shown to us by the author very clearly with that self-talk that he was doing that David is not operating in faith in God here in chapter 27. So that should be red flag number one. Red flag number one going, that, that shoots up for us where we ask ourselves, what did God think of this? Right? And what, what are we supposed to make of this? Is that right there? Like, look, David was not operating in faith. David was not operating in line with God's will here. He was not praying to God to, to, to be his protection and to guide him and lead him in what he was supposed to do. Uh, right? He was not trusting in the Lord at all here. He was not following God. So that's red flag number one to us, that what he was doing was not right because he was not trusting in God in the same way that we saw him trusting in God in the previous chapters or in other times in his life, where he was doing the right thing and he was in line with God's will. So that's the first red flag that should go up. Here's a second red flag that should go up for us, is that David's bloodshed in this passage here is not due to some kind of God-directed band, right? Ban. Like, God did not go to David and say to him, I want you to wipe out all these Philistines and leave no survivors. This was not some kind of holy war that he was sent on. Like I said before, the text is very clear for us that the reason David committed that much an extent of bloodshed, right? Because any war is going to be bloody, but, but to go to that extreme, the text tells us why he did it, not because he was being led by God, but because he said to himself, I can't leave any survivors and let them, let them mess up this good thing I've got going. I can't let them let Achish find out the full truth of what I've been doing. So he's not trusting in God and following him. He is not committing this bloodshed because God told him to do it or because he was in line with God's will, but because he was trying to keep up his own foolish scheme. And the last thing is this, that we should understand when we read this passage, but also you can apply these rules to other difficult sections of Scripture. Understanding that the Bible is morally complex and realistic. The Bible is morally complex and realistic. What we need to understand is that people are morally complex. People are morally complex. We like to try to think very simplistically because, well, Taking something that's complex and smashing it down and making it over, overly simplistic is easier to understand. So sometimes we just don't want to do the hard work of thinking through complex issues. But what we need to understand is that people are complex morally. Every single one of us, me and you and everyone else you know, we're complex. N none of us are purely good or purely bad. Even the worst of examples of, uh, of bad people in human history right, had some good qualities to them. And even some of the best people that we know still have some really bad weaknesses too. People themselves are morally complex. And so whenever we read Scripture, and it's telling us stories about, about Abraham and Moses and David and Joshua and, and the apostles, right, Peter, Paul, whoever else, whenever it's telling us these stories, it does not present the, these people to us as flattened characters that are not what they really were. The Bible fully airs out for us the dirty laundry of Abraham. It tells about all the times that Abraham, in order to save his own skin, tried to prostitute his wife out to a king, a ruler. Right? That happened twice in Abraham's life. Right? The father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, he did that. The Bible doesn't sanitize it. It doesn't try to hide those things for us. 
right? Moses' failures, Joshua's failures, David's failures, and, and, and so on, and all these, others, these, these other characters of Scripture, the Bible doesn't just flatten them for us, make them very simplistic, which would be unrealistic, so it'd be easier for us to understand. Instead, these people, David included, are presented in their full moral complexity. And that is actually one of the things that I think makes the Bible trustworthy and extraordinarily more realistic than other religious literature. Because the Bible presents us with a, a realistic view. The Bible is not a propaganda document trying to make things easy to understand and believe and to just go along with, right? If, if, if the Scripture was a propaganda document just made in order to get people to start believing it easily and start following and doing whatever else, wouldn't you hide all this dirty laundry? Especially when we go to the, the New Testament and we, we look at the apostles, we look at Jesus' disciples who were his closest friends, how they all abandoned him in his hour of greatest need when he went to the cross, right? When we look at Peter, who had become the spokesman of the church, who actually denied and cursed Christ whenever Jesus was on, his, uh, was on trial, if you were just making up stories, if you were just putting together a propaganda document, wouldn't you hide all that? Wouldn't you sanitize it a little bit, clean it up some so that it would be easier to accept and believe? But Scripture doesn't do that because Scripture presents us with the truth. It tells us things as they actually happened. It shows us people as they actually were in all their complexity. The Bible is realistic, and I think that it is passages like this, even though they're hard to swallow, I think it's passages that, like this that, in a way, whenever I, whenever I consider that the, the Bible doesn't sanitize life and that it presents me with, with the true, real story, that actually, in a way, can increase your faith and trust in the Scripture, that it doesn't hide things from you. What the, I think what, we're, what we need to see here is that despite David's foolishness, God's wisdom is still at work, even in this passage. Despite David's foolishness and despite his sin, though we can look at this passage and say that the Bible agrees with us, that David was not in the right, I think that God's wisdom is still at work here. Because what is God up to? Even in this godless text, God is still up to something. Because whenever David, in this passage, starts to act like a raider king, right? Going, he's the Lord over a city. He's going out and he's raiding these different tribes and conquering these different areas. Do you know what he's doing? David is going out and he is fulfilling God's plan to establish his kingdom. What did I say before? That there are all these areas of Israel. There are all these areas of the land and of, of southern Judah that God had promised to his people that were supposed to be a part of his kingdom, but that his people had failed to conquer. And what is David, the raider king, doing here? He's going out, though he's doing it in his own foolishness. God is using it to start building his kingdom. God is using David, his sinful, foolish, morally complex, chosen man, right? He's starting to use him to build and consolidate the kingdom that is going to establish the throne through which his ultimate king would come through, which would be Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing here with the, in this section. He is beginning the conquest of Israel. Though David might not even understand what he is doing, God has a plan for David that he's using even what David is doing to accomplish that plan for him. So here's what I think we need to see and understand. We need to see how big God's grace is. We need to see how big, 
how magnificent, how mind-boggling God's grace is. That even in David's foolishness, God is orchestrating the, this circumstance to accomplish his plan and purposes for David. How is he able to do that? Because his grace is so big, and his grace can be so big because Jesus, who is the ultimate king, who came through the line of David, Jesus was not the raider king, but the exiled king, who went to the cross and conquered death so that God might have his magnificent grace for us. Jesus was the king who was exiled to the realm of death when he went to the cross, uh, exiled from the presence of God, from the promises of God, from the blessing and favor of God. Jesus experienced the ultimate exile. He went into the ultimate wilderness where he went to the cross and faced the death, the, the punishment, the consequences that we deserve to face for our sin, that David deserved to face for his sin. But whenever Jesus, the exiled king, went into death and he went to the grave, he conquered it by rising again from the dead and now, and, now, and now being our resurrection. And because Jesus conquered death, because Jesus conquered my death, because he conquered your death, because he paid the penalty, the debt for our sin, he, God now has grace for us if you are in Jesus Christ. God has a grace that is big enough because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf to cover all of your sin and all of your foolishness. So that now whenever you look at your own life and you examine yourself, you, you examine years past, you examine even this week past, and you look at the past week or you look at the past years and you see all the foolish decisions that you made. You see how shaky your faith was in different moments. You see how you indulged in temptation. You see how you lied, how you chose convenience over wisdom. You see all these things and yet you say, but look at what God has done for me. You can see maybe I'm not all that different from David. Like I said before, maybe if I was in this situation, I would have done the exact same, if not worse. And the only reason that God was still good to David and faith and, and true to his promises to him. And the only reason that he is good to me and true to his promises to me and that, and that I can, can know that I'm still safe and secure in him is because Jesus died my death. You know, in a sense, whenever I look at just the whole history of our church, of, of this beautiful little church we've got here, and I, and I look at Redeemer, and I look at at me being the leader and the, the pastor over all this time, and I look at how foolish I am, how dumb I am, you know, and, and all the mistakes that I've made, and yet here we are, and here you are, and, and, and look at what God has been doing in your life. You know, all those things I look at, how is it possible for you guys to be here, for God to be changing your lives, and God to have done so much through this little congregation. How is it possible we are still here despite my foolishness, despite the weakness of, of Eli or Lagan or anyone else who have been leaders here? You know why? It's because of God's grace. It's because he's so good to us. Examine your own life. Look at where you are, whether it be in your relationships, in your home, in your career, just, or maybe even just in the fact that you have salvation. Look at your life and, and say to yourself and recognize, oh, only because of God, only because of him. And the reason that he is still with me could only be because of his grace, because, boy, I have definitely not done the work to earn this. Remind yourself of God's grace in your life. And let me leave you with this. God was using, in, in 1 Samuel 27, God was using his raider king to spread and conquer his kingdom. We don't follow the raider king, David. We follow the risen king, Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus Christ is, is conquering and spreading a kingdom today. Jesus Christ is going into previously unconquered territories and conquering them for his kingdom. Jesus is going and turning enemies into sons and daughters, bringing those who are far away near into his household. Jesus, our risen king, is conquering his kingdom today. And do you know how he's doing it? He's doing it through the church. He's doing it through you guys, filled with the Holy Spirit, living in your neighborhoods, working your jobs, stewarding your relationships and your resources so that you might be the foot soldiers of his army, spreading and conquering his kingdom, not by the sword, but by love and the power of the gospel. So go forth and conquer. Let's pray. Lord, we just are humbled that we can come to a passage like this that will be so easy to skip over or to write off to say that it must be a mistake. But Lord, if we would come to it in your spirit and with a, a position of humility and teachableness, Father, that you have great lessons for us. How you use even the, the foolishness and the, the sins of your people to accomplish your goodwill. Lord, the humility of knowing the same grace that covered David even in, the, in his, uh, his atrocious acts here is the same grace that we need to cover us every day. So, Father, would you empower us in that grace? Would you fill our souls and our hearts with that grace? Let it make us gentle towards our enemies and loving towards those who oppose us. Let that grace be, uh, be something that, that fills our life with love so that we would be people who operate on love, so that we would be people who spread your love, that we would be people who, whenever others are invited into relationship and presence with us, that it would be healing and life-giving to them because your grace and love flow through us. Lord, and as your grace and love flow through us and as we proclaim your gospel and as we do your work, would you spread your kingdom here in Lafayette through us imperfect, often foolish, frequently frequently failing and sinning people. We thank you for your grace. We praise you in the name of our risen King, Jesus Christ. Amen.